All right, we're about at two minutes after the hour. So I think what we'll do while we're waiting for folks to come in is, uh, let me go ahead and welcome everybody. My name is Dave Schulman. I'm a professor of medicine in the Division of Pulmonary Allergy, Critical Care, and Sleep Medicine at the Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia. And it is my pleasure to uh, moderate today's uh, webcast, which is entitled uh, Teaching Through Chaos, Fellowship Learning During Pandemic Surges. And I want to throw a shout out to Dr. Gabe Boslett, uh, Program Director at Indiana University, who gave us a great title. Uh, so with that, I want to uh, welcome our four uh, speakers and guests today. I'm going to let each of them introduce themselves uh, in order. We will start with Dr. Jennifer Kroll. Hey, everybody. I'm Jennifer Crom, one of the third-year uh, pulmonary and critical care fellows at Wake Forest. Thank you, Dr. Kroll. Dr. Matt Miles. Yes, and I'm also at Wake Forest. I'm an associate professor of medicine, and I'm the current program director for the Pulmonary and Critical Care Fellowship. And I also uh, serve for the American College of Chest Physicians as the chair of the Training and Transitions Committee, so worked with uh, fellow education in both of those roles. So I assume you've met Dr. Kroll before then? Uh, I've seen her in the halls, yeah. Okay, good. good to know. Uh, Dr. Garrett Rampon. I am uh, Garrett Rampon. I'm one of the second year fellows at the University of Kansas. And last but certainly not least, Dr. Geneva Tatum. Hi, I am an associate professor at Wayne State University School of Medicine and program director of pulmonary and critical care medicine at Henry Ford Hospital and also the vice president of the Association of Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine program directors. And as, uh, as you know, Dr. Tatum, one of the critical pieces to earning that title is you have to be able to say the name of the organization without pausing for breath and you did a yeoman's job. So well done. Uh, no doubt you'll serve in that uh, role uh, well over the next year. So uh, thanks to all of our panelists for joining. And again, thanks to all the attendees who have, uh, who have uh, joined with us this afternoon. Um, we have a couple of different topics we want to focus on, but uh, all of them really focus around how fellowship education, both from a didactic standpoint and from a clinical experiential standpoint, have changed in the context of uh, the coronavirus pandemic. And so what I'd like to start with is um, the planning for it. You know, the, back in February and certainly in early March, we knew this was coming. Uh, maybe we should have known sooner, but we knew this was coming back in February and March. And I'd like to hear from the program directors on the calls. I'd like to start with Dr. Tatum. How did your program um, plan to deal with this, you know, even maybe before the, the full surge hit, how did your planning go to try to adapt your program to what you thought might be coming? And then I guess how effective was that planning? Yeah, I, I appreciate the question. It was sort of fortuitous timing for us because it was right at the time that the APCC MPD was having its national conference. And so we put together a quick call at the end of the conference to talk about, you know, planning. And so I was able to get a few ideas from, you know, colleagues around the country. I think for us, it was really identifying our emergency needs um, because where we're located in, in Detroit, we're actually 15 minutes away from an international border. And so that was a unique thing that we had to plan for in terms of border travel restrictions, housing away from family and, and quarantine issues that were unique from, from the border. So we spent a lot of time um, right up front identifying those emergency needs, which were um, inevitably what we had to face when we actually did hit the surge about a week later after that initial conference call. 
Matt, what did you, what about you? How did, what did, what, if anything, did y'all, I'm sure you did something. What did y'all do at Wake Forest to try to plan in advance for what might happen after the surge hit? Well, like uh, Geneva mentioned, we were benefiting a lot from the information coming in from other programs. Um, and the Association of Pulmonary Critical Care Medicine Program Directors, uh, you know, put together some resources for us to stay in contact with other programs and get that info and bounce questions off. And it was really good back and forth. Locally for us at Wake Forest, we entered our uh, COVID peak in late March. And so uh, leading up to that, we planned for pulling fellows off of assignments where they weren't critical. Our concern at that time was maintaining a workforce. And it was not limited to the fellows, uh, to all the faculty in the institution. Uh, but, but as part of that planning, we took the fellows that were on you know, say uh, rotation, clinical rotations where they weren't the essential linchpin in that team. Maybe they have some observerships that they do um, or rotations that maybe were outpatient rotations and the clinics were all closed. And so specifically created this uh, construct that we called the remote pool and had fellows at home uh, doing specific education duties. They prepared conferences for us, uh, but we asked them not to come to work so we could preserve a backup pool uh, to then rotate in and relieve people who are on the front lines at that moment. It's an interesting idea, this, this sort of pool. Dr. Tatum, did you all do something similar? Did you create sort of a, a farm team? I mean, not that there were, you know, lower quality fellows, but, but was there a team of fellows that you kept in reserve in case the first string got sick or just to rotate them out with any frequency? Yes, we constructed a, a platoon system, which is, you know, we had sort of one cadre of fellows that were going to be working together in, in one group and another group that was home, and we kind of rotated them in and out um, on a two-week block which really um, dramatically decreased their sort of level of fatigue. We didn't get to that two-week block system until a little bit later in the surge, but we, we eventually got there, which I think was um, really important. And just like Dr. Miles mentioned, you know, we had a surge plan, you know, in terms of canceling clinics and canceling elective rotations so that we could bring um, all of our fellows in for uh, deployment if, if needed. Um, so it really helped us have uh, an adequate backup system um, because we had to, you know, have an ability to accommodate for someone who may need to be quarantined and, you know, out for that two-week block. So um, the platoon system was really uh, a very effective system for us. So let me get the fellow perspective on this. So we'll start with Dr. Crawl because we already know that based on what Dr. Miles told us that there was some platooning or redeployment uh, in her program. So what's a fellow's perspective on that? I mean, you're getting presumptively freed from your, I'm going to say your less rigorous rotations, your less critical rotations. Um, so what does that look like from, from, a fellow, from a senior fellow's perspective? Yeah, it was definitely a strange time um, not having as many people and there's less people in the offices. So the interactions were down in terms of, you know, usually people would just hang out in the offices and we talk to each other, but we found ways to connect better. Um, 
while we were more remote, like we had our group texts and we probably ended up texting each other more than we, we used to. And uh, also with the move of conferences to being online, that also was a nice feature too, to still kind of interact with each other um, during, before and after the conferences too. And we had um, some check-ins for, there was like the daily faculty check-ins in terms of their planning for what we were gonna do for COVID. But we also had like weekly check-ins where it was um, WebEx and or whatever video chat and um, the fellows would all get involved and we could you know chat about life or talk about fellowship things but it was it was good to be able to still maintain that um, connection. Um, I want to follow up on that but I want to go to, to Dr. Rampon first because we haven't heard about the Kansas experience. I assume that that the folks in Kansas uh, did something similar to what we're hearing about both from Ford and from Wake Forest. Yeah, absolutely. We had the benefit of having um, kind of early planning going on and the decision was kind of stratify what was our plan going to be based on the numbers of COVID cases that we had. And on I know the very, very early onset before we recognized how severe the pandemic was going to be in the U.S., uh, our program uh, director approached uh, pretty much all of us uh, kind of discreetly at the very, very beginning just to kind of gauge what we felt our personal safety would be like. Uh, taking care of COVID patients? Was it something that could be optional that fellows wouldn't be involved in? Uh, And as it became apparent the degree that this pandemic was going to hit us, uh, we took plans just based on, okay, if we have zero to 30 patients in the hospital, it won't, it shouldn't really impact us very much. So we're going to keep a normal planning schedule. Once we hit 30 to 50, now suddenly we're going to have to be stretched a little bit more thin and where are the first rotations that we can kind of trim the fat, so to speak? Uh, and so we, we knew well ahead of time what, what all contingencies were going to be and kind of it, it allowed us to plan accordingly and it felt comfortable doing so. So let me ask with a show of hands, because what we've talked about is, is and I really like the, 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 the system that everyone's talking about, where there are some fellows deployed to the unit, some in backup, and then you rotate them on a weekly or biweekly basis to prevent burnout, to ensure that if somebody gets sick or has to go on quarantine, you have sufficiency of, of, of uh, you have a resilient team. Um, how many, just show of hands, uh, so for those of you who are listening, I apologize, you won't see the answer. Show of hands, how many of your institutions had to open up additional critical care units that did not exist before as a result of coronavirus at any time during the last couple of months? So, so Dr. Carl's not certain. So, all right, so let me start with Dr. Tatum. So, so clearly then you needed more fellows even in the ICUs than ever before because you had more ICUs than ever before. So how did you deal with that? Yeah, it was, um, you know, a, a great collaborative effort because we really relied very heavily on our surgical critical care staff and our anesthesia critical care staff to kind of um, be our extenders, if you will, into all of these other critical care units. So, you know, we, we had to come up with a plan to rapidly, you know, move those patients so that we could increase our medical critical care uh, capacity. And so eventually we just kept expanding as the, as the volume went up, you know, pretty precipitously. 
Um, and then we got to a point where literally every ICU bed within our hospital was a COVID bed. And so we started to come up with plans, you know, as we were getting to that critical mass of turning, um, you know, intermediate care units into uh, ICUs as well. Um, thankfully, we never got to the point where, you know, we had to convert every single um, place that we were considering, but at least knowing that we had sort of multiple levels of planning in place in case our capacity needed to expand to that level was really important. Dr. Rampot, did you guys have similar experience? I mean, where, where it was sort of a multidisciplinary sort of team approach, not just DOE, even though there were medical patients, there were more than just Department of Medicine folks chipping in? Yeah, absolutely. And similar, uh, we're, we had a lot of help from our anesthesia critical care colleagues. Uh, and initially when our turnaround test for COVID testing was still taking a day or more, uh, we had uh, basically a rule out unit that they were kind of taking charge of and managing these patients when we were unsure where they were before we could distribute them to known positive or known negative unit. Um, lots of flexibility from our nursing colleagues as well. Uh, because we had to displace a lot of our nursing colleagues who were specialized to neurocritical care, burn critical care to those patients who still required that level of nursing care, but had to be in a medical ICU where our COVID ICU was. Uh, so there was some great flexibility from our colleagues across the hospital that really helped out. So there's actually a great question coming in from the audience. I'm going to save it for later because it actually will address a number of different things we're going to cover in the next little bit. So to, thanks for the question. If any of you attending have additional questions, please put them in the Q&A and we will triage them appropriately, I promise. So both Garrett and Jennifer, both of you mentioned or at least hinted at this issue of trainee wellness. And, and speaking as a program director, I don't want to speak for Drs. Tatum and Miles, though that would be shocked if they didn't have similar concerns. One of the concerns from faculty and certainly program direction is how do we ensure that that not only are patients getting cared for, but also fellows are getting educated. We talked about that, but also fellows are sort of feeling protected and feeling not overwhelmed in the context of not only all of the craziness going on in the world, but this change in what was promised to you in terms of schedule and educational experience. So Dr. Kroll, how did, how did you and your, and your team at Wake Forest deal with that? Yeah, so um, I think we were really good about Really, Dr. Miles was very open to speaking to us on an individual basis, especially people that were still on some um, services that might put them at risk for exposure. So, you know, he was very open about talking to us about, you know, what we felt our risk was and whether we felt like we were comfortable with, um, with, with our services. And um, even just having those meetings that I mentioned weekly, um, we kind of used that as a way to discuss with each other, like how we felt like our role was in all of this and, and uh, really get that out there and really be heard about it too. Garrett, what about you? What's, what was the Kansas uh, fellow experience like? Not from a medical standpoint, but just from a wellness and, and, and psychological stress standpoint. Sure. And I think the biggest element of the psychological stress behind everything was in the early parts of the pandemic, the uncertainty of what exactly was going to happen. You know, no one really knew. Uh, but what I think we appreciated the most as fellows was complete transparency from our program leadership in what exactly the plans were. You know, what was going to happen if we started to reach uh, our critical levels with our ventilators or our ICU beds, what was our role as fellows going to be in those? Just knowing that there were contingency plans for even 
absolute worst case scenarios really helped us kind of approach it because it, you know, at the end of the day, we're pulmonary and critical care trainees and it's a disease that causes pulmonary disease and critical care illness. So it should be right up our alley in terms of taking care of it, knowing as long as we had, um, you know, the hospital was taking care of us in the background. So I, I, I want to really hear from Dr. Tatum and Dr. Miles in this, because I want to share my experience briefly. And, and I, so every program is different. Every program director is different. What I have learned over a number of years is, or at least what I believe to be true over a number of years, is that fellows are different from students and residents. They're a little bit more mature. Many of them are married. Many of them have families. And unlike, or maybe less like residents and students who I think really need and benefit from a lot of interactivity with each other and happy hours and things like that. My experience with the more senior learners, the fellows is, yeah, they might do okay with a happy hour, but they're just fine going home and spending time either with their family or on their own. And if they want to get together with each other, they will, but they don't necessarily want the mandatory fun that I feel like is much more pervasive in, in student and, and residentship. So I'd like to hear both from Geneva and Matt on this topic. So, and you may disagree with me, feel free to do so. How does a program director ensure her or his team is safe and, and as happy as one can be in the context of all these additional stressors and uncertainties? I'll start with Geneva. Yeah, I have to tell you, Dave, it's, it's the thing that kept me up at night from the moment we got our first patient because I was really concerned for what the workload was going to look like and, and how this was all going to come together. And I think, you know, while I agree that they, they are certainly more mature and they have, you know, different needs, they, they still have important needs nonetheless. And so for me, it was very important very early on to know what those needs would be. A lot of them, a few of them had uh, spouses that were pregnant. And so there were lots of concerns about what their exposure risk to their spouse was or, you know, to their, you know, small children. Um, some of them also take care of um, elderly you know, parents. Um, and so those concerns came first and, and foremost in, the, in their minds. And so those were the things that we kind of had to work ourselves through um, to make sure that those needs were taken care of. We actually tremendously had um, medical students in the area. We actually had some, some um, teenagers from some local faith-based organizations as well who volunteered to babysit and do elder care and run, do meal delivery and get groceries and run errands for our fellows so that those issues that were concerning them around what is happening at home were taken care of, which I think was incredible. And I think for, in terms of program leadership, myself, all of my associate program directors, other faculty, we did, you know, daily walk rounds. We, you know, went to every ICU, spoke to every single fellow, just did a quick check-in, seeing how they were, seeing what their energy level is, making sure that their morale was up, making sure that they had you know, what they needed in terms of, you know, PPE, food, you know, gave them a little bit of a break from their work environment just so they could clear their head for a few moments before coming back into the fray. Um, and that for me was very important because, you know, we all know that that trainees will tend to tell us that everything is okay, even when they aren't. And so, you know, for me as sort of a helicopter program director, if you will, I, I just had to see for myself and, and just make sure of it. And so it was, it was as much, you know, for my own 
wellness to make sure that they were well um, as much as it was for them. I'm going to challenge that assertion. I've known you a long time, Dr. Tatum. I do not see you as a helicopter program. I'm not saying in this instance it wasn't appropriate to be, but in general, I don't think that characterizes what I know about you. <laughs> Dr. Miles, what about you? So, so how does a care, I've known you a long time. You're clearly a very good, very caring program director. How do you make sure the team is staying safe and sane in this weird time? Well, what why I was so struck by when Dr. Tatum was talking about her experience is how similar so many of those things are for me personally as a program director, but also for our fellows, because we also had fellows having babies or their wives uh, having babies or uh, fellows that had ill family members uh, who they were very concerned about the transmission. And so as Jennifer had alluded to, you know, one of the things that, that we did, and I know that you did is reach out to each of our fellows and say, Hey, you know, it's okay. Like you need to know it's okay for you to tell me you'd rather not work here you know, in this COVID environment, in this particular risky area, that that's okay. Because I think just like Dr. Tatum said, fellows almost always want to do the thing. They want to do the hard thing. That's how they got to where they are. They're, they're in pulmonary critical care, like Garrett said, because they're here for this disease. And uh, different people have different personalities. And so some fellows, you're like holding back. You're like, you're not on the ICU. You can't go into the ICU. You shouldn't just go in and look at the COVID patients. Like you're going to have your time in another week or two. It'll be your time for COVID uh, care. Um, and, you know, so then others have much more anxiety about the situation. Um, and one of the things that was so important to me, and I'll, I'll be brief here, I think just like uh, Dr. Tatum had said, is, is being sure for myself that my fellows had what they needed to be safe. I wanted to go visibly personally and see the PPE supplies. As we all know, there was a lot of concern about PPE supplies uh, early on in this surge. We were, like many other hospitals, saving our masks. You know, we were using an N95 for a shift. Uh, we were saving them when they were done. Thankfully, we never had to reuse old N95s. I think they're somewhere in a big pile. Uh, but uh, I wanted to be sure that the fellows had that. I wanted to be sure that in their office, in their workspace, they had the capability to distance and that they had hand sanitizer, which normally we didn't have a ton in there, but because uh, it's not in the hospital, it's, it's next to the hospital. So we did that. Um, we were fortunate, uh, probably like many places, our, our hospital provided nice masks for people to have when they were outside work, when they traveled to the store and, and things like that when they had to. And uh, those were the same things on my mind uh, as a program director is, I just wanted to be sure that they had what they needed, that I could see that they, that they had what they needed. Oddly, Matt, a big pile of N95s was the name of a cover band I had in medical school. So that's worth, that's worth knowing. Um, so there's a, great, there's a great question from the audience that I want to tackle. And I, and I, and I want to think about how best to do this because it's a sensitive issue. Um, and so the ask was that, I'll, I'll rephrase. Did any of you either have fellows, if you're program directors, have colleagues, if you're fellows, who you felt like really were struggling from a, from whatever, not, I'm not saying they didn't get, not, not got sick with coronavirus, although hopefully nobody did, but just from a psychological standpoint, the uncertainty, the, 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 um, the illness of the patients, the high acuity, the relatively high mortality, the stress of the residents, the stress of the staff. Did any of you, again, I'm happy to have a show of hands, feel like there was anybody in your program as a learner who really needed help from a psychological standpoint? 
So nobody. So I and I. So I'll say I feel like I did. I feel like I had at least one trainee who really, and and I, I think it's hard for trainees to admit, even if they have a really good relationship with their program director. I think sometimes it's hard for them to admit when they're struggling. Um, but I do feel like I had at least one learner who uh, I see him now. I'll come there in a sec. Who really, who really needed a little bit more of a discussion. And the challenge was, and I had a good, some good conversations with this, with this fellow, and I certainly didn't want to throw them into harm's way. Not that I thought that the unit was an unsafe to be, place to be. We had adequate PPE, but I didn't want to put them in a place where the stress level would continue to be high when I felt like they needed some time away. And so I did give um, at least one fellow some time away, just some space. Um, now, I'm not sure that was enough. You know, we have, as every program does, we have um, faculty staff assistance programs where people can get confidential counseling if they need it. I don't know if this individual availed themselves of that, although I always recommend it as I'm sure all program directors do. But I, I had at least one person who I knew was having a problem. And I have to wonder whether there are others, even though we were you know, having awkward, dis active discussions and frequent meetings, I wonder if there was at least one or two others who maybe would have benefited from it, but they weren't maybe as forthright as I would have liked them to be. Matt, what are your, what are your thoughts on this issue? Uh, I mean, my thoughts are that it's, I think, in some sense, a fairly obvious thing that all of us struggle at some point with what we've been living through this historic pandemic. I think that uh, that's why I sort of thought about raising my hand, but not. I mean, I, I certainly had moments talking with or observing fellows that I realized they were under a lot of pressure. I had moments personally when I felt under pressure for what we were doing. And, and a lot of that was the uncertainty. Um, and I think uh, I didn't raise my hand because, you know, I didn't have a fellow that I felt that we needed to change assignment on um, from that standpoint. Although, as, as I said earlier, I tried to make it clear to our fellows that we were very open to that um, and wanted to let them know that was an option. Um, but I think, you know, uh, if anything uh, is true about this, it's that it's been difficult um, for all of us on the front lines of healthcare to make it through this. So yeah, there's times when I think that uh, I've had fellows really struggling, um, but those thankfully in my perspective have been short-lived and didn't require change in their assignment. Uh, and part of that's to their credit, the way that they rally and support one another. And uh, that may be something we can talk about a little bit later on conversation is sort of what did the fellows do to, to help achieve and maintain wellness in this area. But uh, that was a big part of, I think, what helped our fellows stay resilient. Let's go to Garrett and Jennifer on that issue. Because I actually, I think that there's some, some nice hay to be mined there. Or to be mined, something to be mined. Let's mine something. So, so from a fellow standpoint, I mean, were there more conversation you can you can unmute either i'd love to hear from either of you on this were there more conversations you had with your colleagues even just to check in even you know minimal stuff like calling your colleagues on the way home even though it wasn't necessarily a call for help did that did those conversations provide some psychological reinforcement or wellness jennifer i, I saw you unmute first so i'll start with you yeah definitely we are a very close-knit program and we'll text individually between each other and also we have our group text but i think that having that ability to just have like sounding boards um, from each other was very helpful in getting through this and, you know, talking to the, the fellow that had the first COVID patient also, I think it helped him to um, process it and, and, and um, kind of get through it and everything. So I think we, we 
did provide a lot of um, emotional support to each other. Um, and it was very helpful to still be able to maintain that contact with each other. Garrett, what about you? Was there, were there some more check-ins maybe with the program that amongst each other that wouldn't have otherwise happened? Yeah, I think it did uh, provide a unifying ground for all of us that, you know, this is the defining characteristic of our, of our fellowship is that we trained through COVID. Uh, and it, it was a bonding experience for us. And I think there were some degree of check-ins um, that were happening routinely and uh, consistently that may otherwise not have. Uh, I do hope that no one, uh, none of my immediate colleagues were deeply struggling because if they were, that's not something that I picked up on. Uh, and I'm not sure it was, you know, out there as much as it should be that, you know, it is okay to struggle through this and it is okay to have stress and anxiety. And if it is there uh, to reach out, to talk to other people, talk to the program directors and leadership and that we're all there for each other and can help cover or pull people off services needed. Um, I hope it was there, but I think that's something that maybe at least I personally could have been a little bit more intentional about uh, saying on the front end. And I know at least nationwide, it was uh, unique to see the response to fellows across the country. Um, somebody started a fellows WhatsApp group of pulmonary and critical care fellows from across the country that uh, I believe had about 250 fellows in it uh, from the beginning in, in March where uh, everyone is able to talk about how they're doing, how their local hospitals were doing, sharing protocols. And uh, it was a really unique bonding experience with that as well. So let's spin into that. There's a question related to that. And folks, please keep the questions coming. And what we'll do is just go back and forth and we'll pull questions out as they come up. So there's a, there's a question about professional organizations and their role in fellowship program needs. But I'd like to actually spin that to a larger question, which is the role of sort of the community at large. So what, what Dr. Rampon was just saying was that there were, and unbeknownst to me, and I'm happy not to know about it, that there were um, um, sort of social media uh, groups um, using widely available apps, where, which connected fellows um, across the nation. Um, so I, I have to plead ignorance. I didn't know that there was anything like that. I don't know if Dr. Tatum or Dr. Miles did, but so Dr. Kroll, did, did you and your group have any extramural conversations outside of the Wake Forest walls with other fellows just to kind of see how things were going nationally? Yeah, we, um, we had people who have friends in other fellowship programs. So we're, we heard about like, well, how other programs were handling things and, like the kind of changes that they were experiencing. Um, some of our alumni also reached back out to us and talked about how things are going at their new jobs and asked us how things were going here. So we, we did reach out beyond the walls as well. So Dr. Tatum, what about, so you are a, a board member, vice president of the uh, Association of Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine Program Directors. I can say it in one breath too. Um, so talk to me a little bit about, because I know your organization has been doing a number of, of web of podcasts related to coronavirus. What resources do APCCMPD, and Matt will come to you on chest in a minute, what resources can national organi or, uh, uh, organizations provide both to programs and to fellows, not just during this time, but even in, in times of other future stresses? Yeah, I think one thing that the um, Association of Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine Program Directors did really well is um, develop these virtual check-ins. So they have programming every month that is almost just-in-time program, if you will. So it's very relevant to what's going on. 
um, that gets us all together and again you know allows us to share our experiences learn from one, one another um, and use that in our own um, program development so you know we think about back in May we had a you know a quick check-in on how do you emerge from the COVID-19 pandemic how do you you know change your programming back to you know what it was uh, pre-existing the co the pandemic or you know pitfalls of using zoom trying to educate your learners things things of those nature which I think are incredibly relevant um, and important and you know being able to do that type of programming um, so quickly um, and be so adept at it was uh, really a, a testament to how important um, I think the organization has been in supporting fellowship program directors uh, in general throughout this whole um, pandemic era. So, Dr. Miles, Matt, what, what uh, both as a member of APC CMPD and as one of the leadership of CHESTS, what's the role of national organizations during times like this? Well, you know, I really think that the national organizations recognized that there was something they could do. Um, and I think the best success was when those organizations really facilitated our community. And I think that's a lot of what I personally experienced as a benefit from what APCC MPD had done is helped put us in places where we could have conversations with one another and learn from each other. I learned a lot from our colleagues in New York City, for example, as they went through the surge that they had that helped inform what I was going to do in North Carolina. Um, you know, one of the things that Dr. Tatum, uh, uh, the, her group did and didn't mention, but I do want to be sure I mentioned was the Facebook groups that were made. I mean, that was another platform we haven't mentioned, but a private Facebook group for members to, to chat and share protocols, share ideas and things with that. I think from a standpoint of uh, the American College of Chess Physicians, it's been facilitating the dissemination of that good knowledge in such a setting where you have lots of lay press reporting on medical facts it's good to have a trusted source like chess that you can go to and say, okay, like, okay, what do the experts really say? Like, what should I really be listening to? And I think that that's been a, a helpful role for, you know, faculty as well as for fellows. I think both chess and SCCM have done a pretty good job of trying to create resources mm -hmm. that folks can use from a medical standpoint because, and stuff is rapidly evolving. We're still having debates about anticoagulation and thrombosis. And I, I, I am, so I actually think the national organizations have done a very good, good job on that. One of the other things that doesn't directly relate to education, but is worth noting is chest, and I think ATS may have been part of this too, was, um, was helpful in, in redeploying doctors. When New York City was getting hit incredibly hard, um, chest, and again, maybe ATS, helped find individuals and to, to, who would be willing to redeploy to New York on short notice and spend a couple of weeks there just helping out. And just point of order, none of us um, is based in New York City. And I, I wonder if some of these answers would be different and significantly magnified if, you know, some of our co-program director friends from New York City, Sashi Dua or Christy Burkhart, were on here talking about their experience, because I suspect it would have been far more stressful and magnified compared to what we're all dealing with. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring up a hot take question. Now, this is not David Shulman asking the question. This is an anonymous attendee asking the question, but it's a great hot take, and I'd love to pick the brain. So everyone has already said that all of our institutions had some fellow redeployments. They took fellows off maybe elective or, or less rigorous critical rotations during this time to create some resiliency. 
Um, was there any discussion by anyone about potentially extending the duration of the academic year to ensure that fellows made up that time? Because in theory, you know, we, all of our rotations are important, right? When, when a fellow does a rotation in pulmonary hypertension clinic, that's knowledge that they may benefit from. So if you take that away, was there, how do you pay that back? How do you ensure your fellows are still graduating with the knowledge they need, even though some of them may have done less clinical time than they otherwise would have done in the context of this craziness we're dealing with? Let me start with Geneva on that. Hot take, again, not a Shulman question, but an interesting discussion. Yeah, this, that, that is a challenging one. I think, you know, fortuitously, I guess is the word, you know, this, this came near the end of the academic year. Um, so our seniors were pretty much done with all of, you know, the required clinical rotations. And so, you know, it was, it was very easy to certify their competency and, and readiness for, for graduation. Our second years and, and first years, we've had to front load this new academic year with some of those experiences that they they missed in the the second half of last academic year to kind of make up that time so we've had to reconfigure some of the rotations um, in order to accommodate for that and you know i would anticipate that as we kind of continue to move through the academic year we'll continue to make those adjustments so we've we've had to you know sort of redefine, you know, what those rotations would look like early in the academic year in particular to, to uh, make up for that lost time last year. Matt, I'm going to come to you in a second. I want to hear from Dr. Kroll and Dr. Rampon. So did either of you or both, or I know clearly people in your fellowship program, did either of you have time when you were undeployed for some number of weeks over the last three or four months in order to create that resiliency in the system? And if so, did you feel like you missed out on anything? And, and uh, I mean, fellowship is three years. Maybe you could argue, you know what? 36 months of fellowship is more than enough. If I only had, you know, a 35 or 33-month fellowship, it would still be fine. I don't feel like I'm missing anything. Uh, and I, I think it's probably closer to the, the latter one on that. I know at least my, my personal experience was uh, I did miss out on several uh, weeks of procedures because uh, during our peak COVID surges, uh, we were limiting our uh, PPE and limiting the number of N95s that could go into the procedure room. So I know I, I personally missed out on a couple of procedure weeks. Uh, but luckily, we have ACGME and kind of higher level authorities that say, you know, what are the basic competencies that you have to have to graduate? And I can still look at my numbers and say, well, I missed out on some compared to my other colleagues within my program. But, you know, nationwide, I'm, I'm still well above where I need to be to maintain those competencies. So there is at least a gold standard there that fellows do need to achieve. Uh, and we can use that as a reference point. And I think that can be done in a few fewer months than 36. Yeah, we had a very similar experience here too, where um, to, to try to preserve PPE, um, there were some periods of time where we weren't doing as many of the airways um, procedures, so bronchoscopy and everything. And I think that just at a baseline for our program, we get a very robust um, clinical experience that I think that our numbers won't be too um, hard hit. And I think that we have um, some flexibility in our schedules, too, that, you know, we can find other times that we normally wouldn't go to, down to the endoscopy suite, that we can go down there and try to get some more procedures in or whatever we feel like we're lacking in terms of competencies. 
Dr. Miles, anything to add, Matt? Similar uh, to what Dr. Tatum said, I mean, we have um, some experiences that fellows do that are not unique to one moment in time. I mean, there are certain rotations, particularly outpatient rotations, that they come back to. Uh, and so they'll do six, seven times during the three years. And so those, I think, experiences are less critical to like find an, an extra time to do it. We have a couple things that are one-off experiences and uh, we can have the luxury in a fellowship, you know, with smaller numbers of trainees, we can take those individually and, and, and you know, look at people's schedule for the next year and put those experiences in a place where they might otherwise have had an elective. Um, but offer them the chance to do that rotation instead that they might have missed out on the first time. Um, otherwise, I'm, I'm really glad <clears throat> that we have now restarted our uh, procedural experience without PPE limitations. And so, yes, we had a period of, you know, maybe four or five, six weeks where fellows missed out on significant procedures. I think it, like, like Garrett said, it's been like that everywhere, but I think we're back to our usual numbers. And uh, I think the experience of the fellows is going to be, is going to be intact. Uh, as everybody knows, you know, the mostly the criteria for graduating is that the clinical competency committee feels that they have enough observations of a fellow to feel that they're capable to do the job. Um, our, our group has felt that they've been able to have perhaps even more observations uh, when they're with them uh, than they would have under the previous structures. Uh, so I think that from a training standpoint and for all of those who are looking to hire fellows as they finish fellowship this year. Did these fellows miss out because they, you know, were furloughed from the unit? No, no, no. <laughs> these are, these are the best fellows you're ever going to have. Uh, you know, they're ready for the pandemic. They can handle anything. My unpopular take is I agree that, that unpopular maybe with, with some people, but I think that 32 months of fellowship is probably just fine for the overwhelming majority. We can debate whether 24 would be fine for many. I mean, remember that only 18 months of clinicals were required. And for those of us, they may miss out on research time, um, but they're not going to be incompetent by any stretch of the imagination, particularly in the context of everything they've had to deal with. I think a lot of them will come out more mature and in dealing with things that they would not have dealt with had they not had to survive a fellowship during that the pandemic. Several of you referenced this same thing, and, uh, and I want to push back against it a little bit. So it was said that, you know, it's a good thing this, well, good, not that it's ever good, but of all of the times this could have happened, maybe it's somewhat fortuitous that it happened near the end of the academic year because people were a little bit more mature, able to handle these things. Um, but that then bleeds into the next question I want to tackle, which is one of the things that happens at the end of the academic year is graduation. Right, so we all had to send off some, I don't know how many fellows, I mean, we graduated eight fellows at Emory back in, in June. Um, so this is a time of celebration, right? This is a time where you, maybe you probably get together, you have a dinner, maybe you have a party, um, you, you give awards or you give certificates. So you're basically, you're celebrating how hard these folks have worked, how far they've come. For many of them, they're leaving your institution. And so it's a chance for you to say goodbye what did you do for graduation? We'll get to orientation in a minute because that's a whole other kettle of fish. But what did y'all do for graduation at this time when you couldn't have a party and celebrate despite the additional stress that, and you felt like this is, this is the one time they needed catharsis? What did you do? I'm going to start with, you start with Dr. Tatum. I haven't heard from Geneva in a while. Yeah, well, we had to do like most everybody did, which was have a graduation ceremony over Zoom. Um, and we really thought hard and long about how to make it as special as we could, given the circumstances. So we actually, you know, had 
friends and family who otherwise wouldn't have been able to attend, you know, really send special messages. They all recorded videos for our fellows and it was all a surprise to them. So as we were, you know, doing this real time graduation ceremony, they were seeing their family and friends pop up onto the screen and, you know, congratulate them. You know, we also had our chief academic officer who, who did a nice um, sort of keynote for them, you know, really acknowledging their contributions and recognizing all of the hard work and diligence that they put in in the care and, and dedication of, of taking care of these patients during, you know, our, our pandemic surge. And so it was really um, a unique graduation to say the least, but I think it was, it was, a great graduation ceremony given the circumstances. And I think most importantly, they felt the appreciation from me, from their faculty, from, you know, hospital leadership in terms of everything that they sacrificed in order to um, take care of patients during the surge. And I think that meant, you know, so much to them and really made that graduation ceremony um, a, a really special one. You were muted, David. I know, I noted. I saw it and I'm like, ah, I, I, I promised myself I wasn't going to do it. <laughs> I want to hear the fellow's perspective. So Dr. Kroll, you're a senior fellow. You, you, you're the class just above you has, has graduated. So what did you think of that? So how did Dr. Miles do, since he's on the phone, <laughs> how did Dr. Miles do with their send-off? Yeah, it sounded like it was a very, so um, part of it um, from what I was told was that they had a dinner um, with the, just the graduating fellows and like uh, and their significant others uh, with some of the faculty. It's just a very small gathering. Um, and they, they, they seem to really enjoy that. And then we also had a WebEx um, graduation and, and Dr. Miles usually does a presentation every year with like pictures of us and kind of going back through the year and everything. So that was, well, it was extra special this year, um, seeing everything that we, the pictures from the past year, and then also um, being able to attend that way was, was nice. Matt, is that, uh, is that a fairly accurate representation? Yeah, it definitely is. You know, one of the things that um, Dr. Tatum said is, I think a goal of mine that, that she shares clearly is that the experience is a one that is meaningful for the graduating fellows and helps them feel appreciated and thanked for what they have done because they have done so much. I mean, they are the driving force and energy behind so much of what we do. And so Jennifer wasn't obviously able to be present at the dinner that we had. And I will say we followed North Carolina governor guidelines on our isolation. We had, uh, we had less than 10 people in the room and we were socially distant, big table. So we, we were following guidelines. Uh, I'll, I won't tell the long story about what I was trying to do and couldn't make happen, but uh, guidelines change. So we actually in that uh, dinner, were quite intentional about the, the way that, uh, of course we, you know, had some, open time, but but I really asked each fellow to share some things that they had experienced during the pandemic, during the fellowship. What did they remember about their colleague? You know, what, what's a funny story you'll remember about that person at the table? And um, the perspective from the significant others, you know, many fellows brought their spouse, their partners, 
and to hear from them, you know, what was it like for you as you watched this happen? And it really was a special time. It really was a special time. One of the things that uh, we always have enjoyed in the past is having a big group, a big group dinner and everybody there to wish the fellows well. And so we couldn't do that. But when we did have our WebEx uh, graduation ceremony, we held it in our typical conference room at the medical center uh, with the graduating fellows present. And I was present. It's a big room. There's plenty of space in there. But then we opened right after it, we opened the room for faculty and other fellows to come by and wish people well. And several people came by afterwards. And, you know, I sort of stood at the door and counted people and made sure we had enough you know, space in the room. But, uh, but we did that and, and did the best we could with the opportunity to have people face to face to say thank you and congratulations and we wish you well. So uh, that was, uh, I, th I think it was successful. I'm glad to hear Jennifer saw that as a, as a successful and a meaningful thing. And I think for the fellows that graduated, they felt the same way. One of our, uh, an atten our attendees, Dr. Deepak, has commented that their program had DoorDash delivery with champagne for everyone. Now you can DoorDash champagne. I wonder if that's legal. It might be. Uh, and they're get they're get a guest speaker, Dr. Fauci, sending a video for the fellows, which is awesome. One of the really cool things that maybe everyone here saw was that Chest and ATS got together and had their leadership. I think Dr. Miles, I think you recorded something for it. I, I, uh, I know I recorded something for it, uh, and I think you can probably still find it. Maybe Beth can post a link to it in the in the chat. Uh, the graduation ceremony. It's about a. 30-ish minute video, I think, which uh, has a lot of the leadership of both organizations um, just talking a little bit about visions of the future and graduates. So if you haven't seen it, uh, it is lovely and fun and, and you, should, you should take a look at it. Dr. Rambot, I'm gonna have you tackle the next topic real quick. And that is sort of the next step after graduation is onboarding and orientation. And of the group on this call, you are the one who went through the process of orientation most recently. Now you didn't do it in the context of, of the pandemic, do you have any sense at all of what the folks at Kansas did? Because the problem is you're bringing these new people in. Many of them have not been in Pick Your City, Kansas before. Um, so you have to introduce them to the city, the program, the culture, the expectations. How did, how did you all tackle that in the context of not being able to get together as a large group? Yeah, and that's, that's so difficult, especially from the first few weeks of being there are so crucial and kind of that's uh, getting, to know, getting to know the facility and the fellows. I think we were a little lucky that this was, um, at least in that context, uh, we had more in-house people that stayed on than usual, and so we had more familiarity than most years, uh, and so it wasn't as large of a challenge. Uh, one of the more complex issues was we had uh, typically, uh, during my orientation, we had skills-based uh, orientations, uh, large scale with other facilities that we would travel to to do uh, bronchoscopic work or ultrasound courses, et cetera, that are no longer available. That had to be adjusted uh, to be an in-house uh, procedure, so it, it took some more hands on deck to kind of put together those types of experiences to get the basic clinical skills uh, that their first-year fellows need, uh, and it's going to be extremely difficult kind of projecting that on to the recruitment for new fellows in this upcoming year and what are the best ways to do that. I know that is kind of nationwide a very hot topic among program directors about what, what can we really do to have that in-person feel that is so critical to picking a program and, and replicate that over a Zoom type platform. And this bleeds nicely, actually, I want to hear from Dr. Tatum and Dr. Miles on this. This bleeds nicely into the interview season, which is coming up. And how do you, because part of that is sharing the culture, right? A lot, you're going to get great training at 
almost all programs around the country. How do you help sell? How do you sell Ford or North or, or Wake Forest or Atlanta in the context of people not physically being there? So Geneva, I'll let you take it first, but orientation and or, or interviews, how do, you, how do you help people see what Ford has to offer? Yeah, I think, you know, in terms of the interview season, we're all doing them virtually. That, that is uh, not unique to us. Um, we've spent a lot of time putting together a new website with lots of videos that really get to give you know, candidates and insiders perspective. So while it's not, you know, what they would necessarily see everything while they're here, it gives them a, an insider's perspective. So they get a view on our procedure suites and our bronchoscopy and our sim lab. But they also, I think even more importantly, they, they will get to, you know, view some words from me, but from fellows that are in the training program so they can get a feel for what fellowship training at our institution looks like from someone who is actually here. And then, you know, obviously part of our virtual interviews is that we plan to do some, you know, virtual happy hours, if you will, with our fellows so that candidates can drop in throughout the interview season, not just on interview day, but throughout the season and ask questions, get some more information about the program, get a feel for the culture, get a feel for what training really looks like uh, here, you know, within our program. And I, I think that's probably the approach that many, if not all programs will, will be taking this, this year. Matt, anything to add? To no, I mean, I, I think I read Geneva's playbook because I mean, the things that she says is exactly the way that we're approaching this too. I think we want to try to communicate what is it like to be a fellow here? That's so much of what I think candidates are looking for when they go and visit a place physically is they want to hear from the fellows. Um, I think one of the challenges, to be honest with you in this, is the harder is how do we as a program assess whether that person is a good fit for us? Because as we all know, you often learn a lot in an interview, but you often learn some really important things when people are just sitting loose and making, you know, side conversations, you find out, hey, you know what, this person really is kind of like us and they're going to fit in well personality sometimes you learn the opposite is true uh, so i think that's a challenge but uh the things that dr tatum mentioned is how to uh, communicate what your program is like we're doing many of the same things on the orientation point you know the thing that we like to do like uh, dr rampon has said is we like to have large-scale regional procedural training hands-on training um, and we had to abandon the regional courses this year and, and replicated those locally. We still were able to have most of our things in person because we only onboard four pulmonary critical care fellows each year. And so we can do that in a distanced and masked environment. So we were able to continue most of the same activities. They just looked slightly different. Dr. Tatum, have you, if you have published a playbook, I'd appreciate your putting the reference in the chat so everyone else can see it. Um, one of the questions from the attendees, which I suspect is, is, um, is, is not new to us, but you know, one, uh, one of the things that we can do after somebody interviews is have them meet remotely with people who share interests. So if somebody comes and interviews and says, hey, I'm really interested in pulmonary vascular disease, you can, subsequent to that, have them meet via Zoom or WebEx or whatever your 
whatever your uh, program is with your PH fellows or your, or your PH attendings with that. So that's a nice opportunity. We have two minutes left. There's one last question I want to tackle, and I'm going to ask everyone to give a short answer to this one. So keep it to 30 seconds. And it's really a lessons learned question. So the, now the country's back, opening back up. What, assuming that six or 12 months down the road, we're back to normal, reasonably normal. What lessons did you learn from the last five to six months that you think will stick with your program? What changes to your program have you made that might continue? And I understand the fellows don't necessarily have any oversight of that, but based on your experience in the program, what things have you done differently in the last six months? So you're like, you know what, this is how we should do things moving forward. So I'm going to start with Matt because I don't like him as much as I like the rest of you. And that way you all have a little bit more time to think about it. So Dr. Miles, what changes are going to stick with your program? Well, I'm so curious to hear what the fellows would say. Um, you know, this program, uh, this experience, and I have 30 seconds. So um, teleconferencing, video conferencing, that's here to stay. And we had already made some moves in that direction because we have fellows at different sites and different rotations, and we wanted to be able to record things. We've all gotten a lot better at that. And not only us who do this a lot, but even my faculty that aren't so computer savvy, like now they can do a WebEx and that's really good. And they know to mute themselves when they go to the bathroom and that's really good. Um, so that's here to stay, I think. Uh, the other thing is we will, I think, when we do get back together, and, and this will happen to us, this will happen hopefully within the year, next year, calendar year, or not, you know, whatever, 12 months, we'll be back together. And I think we're gonna appreciate being together even more. And uh, I think that's gonna be a lasting takeaway in a positive direction. Dr. Tatum, what, what changes have been made at Ford that you say, you know, these are for the better and we should continue to do this in some way, shape or form, even once the pandemic is over? I think for us, it has been, again, a focus on wellness and a sensitivity to workload that we've never had before. We've actually reconfigured how we deploy um, residents and fellows in the ICU um, and reconstructed, actually constructed, if you will, a new ICU team of faculty um, to kind of decompress our teaching services, which has been met with raving success. And so it's, it's learning from the, the pain points that we experienced that we're now um, I think, you know, coming out ahead and, and doing things a little bit more creatively and, and better for everyone. Right, I'm going to give the fellows the last word. So I'm going to hold you all to 30 seconds each. Dr. Rampon, what, what would you, what have you learned from this that you think that Kansas should do moving forward? Yeah, I, and I agree with what Dr. Miles said 100%. I, I think the teleconferencing of our educational opportunities uh, has drastically improved how they are. Um, it, it increases our accessibility if we're on a busy rotation or if we're, you know, off campus. The ability to actually get in and get our high quality uh, interactions and teleconferencing is is miles ahead of where it used to be. Uh, and, and agreeing on the um, newfound appreciation for just being around each other and and being in close proximity and being able to take care of each other, you know, in person in a Hopefully, socially distant will not be in the vocabulary too much longer. Dr. Kroll, the last word from the panel is yours, ma'am. Yeah, so absolutely, I agree. The conferencing has been a great addition to, the video conferencing has been a great addition. Um, I'm frequently off campus when I'm doing my research, so just being able to listen in on conferences and maybe multitask at the same time has been a great addition. And 
um, I hope that we keep maintain our um, uh, emotional connections with everybody too. All right. Well, with that, we will call. We're at 5:02 uh, Eastern Time, 4:02 Central. So I apologize for running a, a 120 seconds late, but I want to thank our panelists, Dr. Geneva Tatum, Dr. Jennifer Crawl, Dr. Garrett Rampon, Dr. Matt Miles. I want to thank our attendees for joining us for this today. We are recording it, so you can play it back as often as you want. Uh, and I want to thank Chess for pulling us together and facilitating both this and all the conferences that they have done related to trying to spread education related to coronavirus. So. Everyone stay safe. We hope to see you again soon. Have a wonderful rest of your afternoon and evening.